We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Good morning, Grinders! Welcome to DFS Pregame Show here on Roto Grinders. I'm Jordan Cooper a.k.a. Blender Ed, Blender HD, if you want to follow me there on Twitter. And it's Friday, casual Friday. It's always casual here. The last day of the week, heading into the Sunday NFL slate. We'll run some lineups. We'll see what's going on. Uh, has anything much changed since yesterday? I don't know. But Jimmy G is still still out. Okay, I'm, I'm looking through some of the injury stuff. Uh, Mike Williams, like the Chargers guys, they're, they're coming back off the COVID list. Kelsey is coming back from the COVID list, right? We got we got that information. We got some a bunch of P's, right? A bunch of probables, and uh, we're still maybe waiting on. I, I, we uh, AJ Brown's not in practice or something, or is limited or something. It's always something with that guy. So we're gonna have to take a look there because he's gonna be popular. Assuming he plays at full strength, he's gonna be a, a pretty popular option. Uh, more so on FanDuel, but still enough so on DraftKings. So we'll have to monitor that. And as I always do, I monitor the YouTube chat. I see you guys in there. Good morning, Jupocalypse. Good morning, Card Fan. Good morning, everyone. Give me those thumbs ups on your way in the door. Get to hit the screen any way you want, right? Hit the subscribe button if you're new here. Even if you're not new here, have, why aren't you hitting the subscribe button? I don't know. Why aren't you subscribed to the channel? Hit the notification bell to know whenever we go live on the channel, which is uh, which is often, right? We always do grinders live, live, right? Uh, for NBA later today, right? And we got this show in the morning. Right, going over some NFL stuff, but we had an interesting, uh, we had, we had interesting conversation last night 
in uh, in the, the, the our Zoom coaching call that I do in, in the premium Roto Grinders Discord. We had a two-hour conversation. I had Alex Santi on. It's always everyone else's time. Like you could sign up and like talk for whatever you want. Uh, but it was a it was a slow day. It was a slow night last night. I mean, we had about 30 or 40 people on the call. Uh, but uh, me and Alex were talking about a bunch of game theory stuff. I want to show you one of the problems where we were we were talking about. And to to use another like to use game theory, you don't have to like, okay, what's game theory for DFS? I, of course, I have the course. I have the Theory of Daily Fantasy Sports, 15-hour audio DFS masterclass, theoryofdfs.com, on how game theory relates to DFS. But just, just uh, trying to solve game theory problems, reading game theory-related books, gets you more into the mindset of how to think about games in general, and then makes you think better about DFS, thinking probabilistically, thinking in terms of, First level, second level, third level thinking. What do you have? What do your opponents have? What do your opponents think that you have, right? Those types of dynamics. It works very well in poker, right? So translating poker as a game theory concept into DFS, that that, that was my transition into daily fantasy sports. But just solving game theory problems, or at least exploring them, will will make it better. That, that transition from from DFS being a game about knowing about sports into a game about knowing about games uh, will, will, will benefit you uh, and, and, and make you a more profitable player. I mean, so we, we had, we had this problem. This Alex brought this, brought this problem to the group. Right. And, uh, and he wanted to know, he basically did. He wanted to know why the video was wrong uh, and how I would go about solving it. And we, we both came to the same conclusion. Uh, and in this problem, in this problem, if you want to call it a problem, it's a card game. So there's six cards. I put it on the screen. I don't know. I you can't hear it if I play the video. Uh, there are six cards in the deck, right? There's six cards, numbered one to six. And if I if I pick at random the card two, and my opponent, I have one opponent that also picks a card, and the goal of the game is to have the highest number. Okay, so I pick two. So what's the chances? of me winning the game if I pick a two. Okay, so this is the first, this is called first level thinking. Okay, so if I have a two, my opponent could have one, three, four, five, or six. Okay, so how many cards is that? That's five cards. Okay, so one one of the five cards is 20% of the time, right? 20% of the time, my opponent will have a one. 20% 20% of the time, my opponent will have a three. 20% of the time, my opponent will have a four. 20% of the time, my opponent will have a five. 20% of the time, my opponent will have a six, right? Because I already have the two. My opponent can't have the two. So what, how, how often do I win this game? If I see a two, how often do I win this game? Well, I win this game 20% of the time, and I lose it 80% of the time, right? Because you add up these 20s, 20, 20, 20, 20. 24 hours to go. I want to be sedated. But especially if I get the two, because 80% of the time, I'm going to be broke, right? I'm going to be sedated. So here's the, the, so if I have a three, if I pick the three, what's the chances of me winning the game? Well, 40% of the time, my opponent will have a lower card. And 60% of the time, my opponent will have a higher card. What's my chances of winning the game if I pull a one? 100% lose. I can't, I can't possibly win. 
Okay. So thinking of the card game in the first level is that, right? What, what, what is, what is my hand and what's the chances of it winning at this very moment? Okay. But now, now we introduce to this, let me fast forward it a bit, right? Right. We could look right here. If I fast forward in the video a little, right? You lose if your opponent has the one, you lose if your opponent has three, four, five, six, and you win if your opponent has the one. 80% chance the other card is higher, right? So let's move this along a little bit. Uh, yeah, okay, maybe maybe this, uh, no, there's no really good example over here just for me to leave on the screen. So let's go back to the original. Okay, so if I have a two and my opponent chooses a card, the question is, my opponent now asks me if we'll if we could switch. Okay, so my I've drawn the two, I've drawn a card. My opponent has drawn a card. My my opponent has now asked me, "Would you like to switch?" Let's switch. What card would I need to have in order to accept accept that 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 proposal? Now, obviously, if I choose, if I chose a six, if I look at my card at that moment and go, I have a six, I'll never trade, right? Because I automatically win, right? If I do not trade, I win. Because the only thing I could do is obviously get a lower card and I'm giving my opponent the best possible card. So if I switch, I lose 100% of the time with a six. If I have a six in my hand, if I have a five in my hand, how often do I win when I switch? Well, I'll win 20% of the time because I'm giving my opponent the five and I'm he'll, he'll have the six 20% of the time and he'll have one, two, three, or four 80% of the time. So it's the same exact type of thinking in reverse, thinking about a switch with, you know, if you have the four, if you switch, if you, if you stay on a four, you'll win 60% of the time and you'll lose 40% of the time. And if you switch, you'll, win 40% of the time and lose 60% of the time. Okay. So the game, the game comes down to, do you switch now with this question? There's a very important thing that, that I've left out, whether or not my opponent has looked at their card. Okay. So first level thinking is what card do I have? What's the chance of me winning? We did that, right? I drew two. My chance of winning is 20%. Second level is what does my opponent have based on that trade? Would you switch with your opponent? So now I'm considering what my opponent could have because he's asked. Now I could take his card if I want. So if I have a two and I switch now, I now that whole reversal that goes to me. Right. The exact reverse of my chances happens. Because it has to equal one another. So if I don't switch. 20% of the time I lose, 80% of, uh, of the time I lose, 20% of the time I win. If I switch, I win 80% of the time, right? Because I'm going to get one of, one of these cards and my opponent gets my two, okay? So that's second level thinking. Third level thinking would be, did my opponent look at his card, his or her card, okay? Because the, the, the second level is not even assuming that he even looked at He doesn't even know what he has, right? But now, if I know that he looked at his card, why is he asking? Now, if he has a six, 
why the hell would we? What? How often would he ask me to switch? Zero percent of the time, because he automatically wins. Why? Why would he even risk it? Right? Why would the? Why would he say, "Let's stop. It's up to you. Let's switch." We'd do that zero percent of the time, right? Unless he's a maniac, he automatically wins with a six. Let's say he is. He has a five. Okay. Now, most likely, if he just stays with a five, he'll win eighty percent of the time. But 20% of the time, he'll lose. So from a game theory optimal standpoint, if we were to play this, this little game out a million times or whatever, against the same me and him, the same opponent, and he would ask me to switch X amount of times, in order to balance out the times where he has a low card and he wants me to switch, he should ask me to switch when he had draws a five, 20% of the time, right? Equals the amount of times that he'd lose in that. So 20% of the time, he should ask to switch with a five. If he has a four, if he stays with a four, he'll win 60% of the time, lose 40% of the time. If he asks to switch, he'll win uh, 40% of the time, and lose 60% of the time, okay? But if he asks me 40% of the time, there's nothing I can do on my end to counteract it. If I, if I always declined, he make it, it, whether I always decline or never decline does, won't change his chances. It'll end up being 50% right in the middle, regardless. It's, right, it's at, that, it's at the, what's called the Nash equilibrium. Okay, so game theory optimal means whenever you whenever you say game theory optimal, GTO, that means what do you have to do to reach the national equilibrium? What do you have to do to render your opponent's decision moot? That no matter what decision they make, they cannot change the expected value of the action. So whether or not I accept, whether or not I don't accept, doesn't matter. You're doing it at, at a at an optimal frequency that I can't exploit, right? I can't think in terms of, well, how often will this person ask to switch? And if I'm off by that frequency, my opponent profits. So if he asks 40% of the time with a four and 60% of the time with a three and 80% of the time with a two, right? And 100% of the time with a one, like there's nothing, there's not, whether I accept or deny, He, there's no way for me, right, his opponent, to have any other frequency that get, that increases my expected value. Okay, now that's not the the scope of this of this exact question, but just thinking in those terms of what do I have? What do my opponents have? What do my opponents think I have? Types of mentalities, and that it's not like one hundred percent or zero percent. Right. Because the question would be. If I just came out before I explained any of this and go, well, uh, my your opponent, hold, you hold a four. Should you ask to switch? Right. Well, there's three cards that are lower and two cards that are higher. So. Like just on the basis of one game, you would never you would say, no, I'm not, I'm not switching. Right. Yeah. But let's say you played this game 10,000 times. 
and you're playing against the same opponent. Like if I know that you're only going to that, if I know that the only time you ask the switch is with a one, I'll never, I'll never accept it. So you're, 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 you can't increase your expected value, right? Cause now I'm playing the, the optimal frequency. When you have a one, my optimal frequency is to decline 100%, right? So if you only ask when you have a one, then I only decline, right? Because I'll know that that your frequency on all these cards is 0%, 0%, 0%, 0%, 0%, 100%. So you know what my frequency is going to be? It's going to be in equilibrium. With a one, it's 100%. With a two, it's an 80%. With three, it's 60. Four, it's 40. Two, five, it's 20. And six, it's zero. So as long as I stick to those frequencies, I can't be exploited, assuming that that's how often you ask. So in order to throw me off my equilibrium, you'll have to ask at least 20%. You'll have to ask at, at some amount of the time with a five. You're sitting there with a five going, well, I win 80% of the time, right? Now, 20% of the time I have a six. Now, obviously, uh, if I have a six, I'm 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 never I'm never going to trade. But he has to ask sometimes with a five, just so I know that if he never asks with a five, that means he must have four, three, two, or one, which means I'll never I'll never end up trading, right? So thinking in terms of frequencies, what is my opponent going to do? So and this example with a two, you have a two. So how often, right? How often should I accept with the two? Should I, should I, accept? I mean, the, the, this example here, if you go to the, if you go to the video, they're treating it as very one linear. That, that was the whole conversation last night. That this, com, this that this, that this uh, game theory problem uh, was done by, uh, by a chess player. Was it shown like, as part of like, I think a TED, TED talk or something. And, but they're explaining it at the aspect of it only being one game. Right. This is the, the this game won't be played again. You're playing one hand of this game. So if you're playing one hand of this game, what should you do? But in DFS, we don't think that way. In poker, we don't think that way. We don't think in terms of, I mean, like I, my my the common thing that when when someone will say, Well, I did the, the process well and I lost today, right? I did everything you said. I did I have played a great lineup like this, of like it's some random bullshit war, right? And my attitude is, is, is DFS over? Is, 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 are we never playing DFS again? Is, because the whole point of, of playing plus EV lineups is that it's an expected return over time, over a large sample size, the law of large numbers. As the sample gets larger, your actual returns and your expected returns get closer together. More of a sample. You, you get to overcome variance. So we were talking about last night in the Zoom call about this problem, not taking that into account, right? In this video, they never they didn't talk about frequencies at all, as if this would only happen once. But the mindset you should be in is to think in terms of, I'm playing this game a million times, a hundred times, a thousand times, whatever. What would be profitable if I always did? Or how often do I need to do something so that it becomes profitable. So like thinking in terms of if I draw a two, if I'm the one that's asking now and I draw a two, 
I should ask to trade 80% of the time to be game theory optimal. Does my opponent know which four out of the five times I'm asking with the two or with, or with the five, four, three, two, or one? No. But if I were to ask 80%, if I ask 70% of the time and I ask the one, because obviously the one I want to ask 100% of the time, like my opponent can exploit that, right? By then changing their frequency to match mine so that I can't change anything. Knowing that, like, obviously I'm not trading on a six, right? So I got these five cards. So how often is he asking on a five? If he's only asking on a five, 5% of the time, that means I'm all, all the times that I'm asking, the I'm over asking on one of the other cards. I'm over asking on the two. I'm over asking on the three. I'm over asking on the four. And once my opponent figures that out, after we play 100, 200, 500 times, it's like, like I'm rarely ever seeing a five when I trade. So it's like, okay, so 0%, so then he starts matching my frequencies. So what does this have to do? What, what do you have, have to do with DFS? Well, think in terms of lineups, not players, right? It's the, it's the same type of concept of uh, if a player is X amount, I mean, I use it from a player perspective because it's easier to understand, but it's really done from a lineup perspective. Is that if a player is 23% owned, well, how much should he be owned? What's the frequency of him? Of his, What is his value? What is his relative value worth? Should he be 23% owned or should he be 19% owned? Should he be 27% owned? Based on, you know, the actual range of outcomes. Well, if he's 23% owned and you think he should be 27% owned, that means the field's frequency is off. So if you roster them at 27%, you're now game theory optimal. Whether, 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 whatever the field uh, rosters them at is going to be a mistake. As long as, it, I mean, if it's 27%, then, then you, you've benefited nothing. You've just, it's zero. It's neutral. If they're over-owned, right? If they they should be 34%. They, they, they should be 27%, but they're going to be at 20 at 34%. Well, if you roster them at the optimal frequency of 27%, like you can't be exploited, right? Because, oh, well, 34% of the field has this guy. Well, that extra, what, 7% of the field that has him is negative EV. For the, I'm, I'm talking about on a player level. Like I said, it's easier to explain this on a player level than on a lineup level because it's really a lineup level. How often should this lineup of eight players be rostered as a combination, right? Not, not in a duplication way, but just how they go together. And I know that we have Daniel uh, Hutchings, who hasn't been in chat in a while. I guess, you know, in between the holidays, taking a break. Like Nerdy Tenor, like this is how he approaches DFS from a balanced strategy. So that's kind of what we're talking here with this little card game. What would be the uh, game theory optimal, the GTO way to play this game if you played it a million times over and over and over again? Well, you could either be game theory optimal, which is just, I don't care what how often I ask on what card. I don't even care about what my opponent does because 
I'm going to ask at the optimal frequency and let my opponent accept or deny at a suboptimal frequency. And that's all I need to do. Now, you can make more money with an exploitative strategy. Okay? So like in DFS, we'll go back to that example. That a play, this player, we deem that this player should be 27% owned, but he's only going to be 23% owned, which means there's a delta there. There's an arbitrage situation in relative value where I'm getting a player, I'm getting a player that should, that should be providing this amount of value at 27% ownership at 23% ownership. So I want to play more of that player. Right, I I I figured out that twenty seven should be twenty seven percent owned. I could just play him at a twenty seven percent rate, and 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 auto profit. But I'd profit more if I played him at a thirty three percent rate. Right, that delta in between the twenty seven and the twenty three. Now let's go the other way. The guy should be twenty seven percent owned, but he's going to be thirty four percent owned. Now if I roster him at a twenty seven percent rate. I can't be exploited, right? I have I have less of him than the field, right? I don't have 34% of him. I only have 27%. But if I wanted to exploit the field, I and he's 34% owned, and I have him at 27, no, I'm going to have him at 19, right? The delta in between the two on the other side to some fashion. And the more over-owned the player gets, the less of the player that I'm going to have to exploit the field. The more under-owned the player is, from my calculations, from my perceptions, I'm, I'm, how much should they be owned and what will they be owned? The more under-owned they are, the more of them. I want to exploit the fact. You have a player that should be 20% owned that's going to be 2% owned? That situation rarely happens. The field isn't that dumb. Like you don't just want 20% of that player. If you if you play 60% of the player, it'd be more beneficial to you. But in this exploitive strategy, in thinking exploitably, you have to be able to uh predict what the field is going to do. Right? Because you're taking you're taking two numbers. What should this player be owned? What is the optimal frequency that this player should be owned? And then what is the field going to do? To find the delta. Okay. So if you're off, I think this guy should be 27% owned. I think the field will roster them at 20%. And I'll exploit that by having 35%. And then I check the, you know, lock happens and the guy's 32% owned, which is 5% over owned. And now I have more of the guy, right? My exploitative strategies now turn negative EV. Because I've I've not predicted the field properly. In the balance strategy, you don't even have to care about that. All you have to do is figure out how how often should these guys be owned, right? What's the what what is the optimal ownership frequency of these players, and then just play those players at those frequencies, and let the field and let the field make mistakes. Absolutely. Now it's hard to we're saying that it's like it's easy. It's hard to figure out. It's hard. Right. What should this player be owned? I mean, that's 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 the that's the holy grail. You could estimate, you could 
you could run simulations, you could do whatever you want, but still at the end of the day, that's it's not it's not exactly not 27.4 percent of the time. Well, based on a, a reasonable projection system and salary constraints, and obviously not considering like late news and stuff that throws everything off for like NBA. But if you could, let's just say you could, like you you were the bet you were better at estimating how often a, how how much a player should be owned. If you were if that was your strength of like I I don't know what my opponents are going to do. I live in a bubble, but I'm really good at looking at an NFL slate, an NBA slate, an MMA slate, whatever slate, and calculating or estimating how much these players should be owned. Like if that, if that, if you were really accurate with that, you wouldn't have to care about you. You would, if you didn't want to, you wouldn't have to care about what the rest of the field. Did. You would it'd be oblivious. It doesn't matter. I don't even care what my opponents did. Very similar to this card example. If I have the, if I put in the optimal frequency of which I ask for a trade or accept a trade, I don't have to consider what my opponent has and what their frequencies are. I, I don't. I'm doing it at the optimal rate. There's nothing that my opponent can do that 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 decreases the, the expected value of my my decisions, right? But I'm also not exploiting my my opponent's decisions if they're suboptimal. So the exploitative strategy, if you're really good, you don't have to be as good as uh, figuring out how often a player should be owned, right? You could be you could be less. You could be a little bit more off on that. Because you're not trying to play them at the optimal frequency. All you're doing is trying to find the delta. Is this player under or over owned? And by how much? Because the more they're under owned, the more you're going to play them. And the more over owned they are, the less you're going to play them. Now, in my methodology, I, I, have, a, I, I have a very blunt methodology. I, I, I focus more on being directionally accurate than being precise. So if we go to the example from before, that this guy should be 27% owned. And then I go, well, what is he going to be owned by the field? Well, I think he's going to be owned 20%. So I'm going to play 34% or whatever. Now let's say I'm let's say he ends up being 22% owned and not 20, which means I probably should have played like 32% of them and not 34. I'm still, I'm still playing more. I'm still, I'm still exploiting the field. I'm exploiting the field a little too much. The person that's playing balance, that's playing just 27% of the field is also exploiting the field. They didn't realize they were exploiting the field because they're just like, oh, how long should this guy be? 27, I'm playing 27. Comes in at, whether he comes in at 20 or 22, he's still, he's still profiting from that. He's still exploiting the field without even, without even considering what the field is going to do. But the exploitative player, since I'm going to be moving my frequency, I, I need to be really good at predicting what the field's going to do. Same way with this card game. If I'm going to change my frequency, like if I just sit there and go, when I have a two, I ask to trade 80% of the time. Like if I know that my opponent is accepting at a higher rate than he should, then I should be asking at a higher rate, right? If I, if I, if, if I know that he's accepting 90% of the time, why am I only asking 80% of the time on a two? 
Shouldn't I be asking? Should, shouldn't I be asking at least ninety percent of the time on it, regardless of what I have? When I have a two, well, of course. If I know that he's accepting when I have a two, eighty percent of the time, what can I? What, what can I, I? I could start not. I could start uh, not asking to see if he'll move his frequencies on other cards and then exploit that, right? But I don't have to. I, I could just play the balance. The balance strategy. Then my opponent can can never exploit me. Doesn't mean I win the game, right? We we see tic tac toe, right? Like when when both players reach the Nash equilibrium, no one wins. It becomes a stalemate. That's essentially what you're doing. You're playing not to win the game. You're playing not to lose the game. So when when you think about building lineups, when you think about playing DFS. You're sitting here going, I don't know. I don't know how any of this does the DFS. I think all of this has very much to do with DFS. It's, it's the theory of games. Thinking probabilistically. Most people that play DFS, most average players go, oh, I have a two. Okay, I'm obviously going to ask to trade. They don't think in terms of, I should ask to trade 80% of the time. They go, why? I have a two. Like most likely... Like 20% of the time I have a one. Oh, oh, now you're starting to add probabilities. Most people think in terms of, I have a two, this play, this player is going to suck, right? They go, I can't, be- I can't believe I have a two. But the games haven't even started yet, right? You have, uh, you have whoever. And I don't really want to mention basketball players. It seems like everyone's out, right? You're, you're rostered, you're rostered Nick Foles or something. And you go, geez, I have a two. I want to trade. And you go. Well, 20% of 20% of the time, Nick Foles is going to put up 30 points. So why are you trading? It's like, yeah, but it's it, he's not going to. I said, no, he's going to 20% of the time. Don't think in terms of yes or no. Don't think in terms of 0% and 100%. Now, if you have a one in this example, you lose no matter what, right? Having a one is, is plugging in an injured player into your life, Right. Right, you're plugging. If you plug in Andy Dalton, who's out, right? Or we just have Kirk Cousins. Kirk Cousins out. Apparently, he's on the COVID list. So let's say you, I got Kirk Cousins. That's like having a one. So if you tell me, like, oh yeah, I'm gonna trade Kirk Cousins in 100 percent of the time, I'd say that's the optimal frequency. Why shouldn't you? He's guaranteed to get a zero. So yes, that that is a binary decision. But every other decision, other than one or six here, two, three, four, or five is a frequency, is a probability. If you draw a five, like in the same example, if I asked an average DFS player, you drew, you have a five, do you ask to trade? Average DFS players wouldn't even think twice and go, no, of course not. I would never, and they would say, I will never trade when I have a five, never. Well, if my opponents know I never trade with a five, the optimal frequency is 80%. You should you had the optimal frequency is 20% that you should trade with the five. But if you're gonna never if you're gonna trade 0% of the time, I can exploit you. Right? I'll I'll you I'll accept or deny trades at a different frequency so that that the times that you ask me, I deny, right? Because since you're never asking me with a five. I'm going to start denying more often 
which means I'm not accepting when you have a one, two, three as often as should be optimal. So even though, yeah, I always went with a five, right? Because I, I always, I, I, I went so much more often with a five. It's like, you actually don't. Because sometimes I have a six, right? 20% of the time I have a six. And then since you never ask to trade, you'll never get a six. You never get to turn those around. And 80% of the time, you'll win. But then when you have a four or a three or a two or a one, you could only ask a, a total pie of 100%, which means you're going to be over asking on these cards, which means I'm going to over deny you, which means you lose more often with the three. You lose more often with the two. You lose more often with the four. Yeah, but I but I I'd never trade on a five. No, you should trade. You should ask to trade at least twenty percent of the time. How often should you play this guy in DFS? How often does this guy hit a certain percentile outcome? It's all probability based. It's not is this guy going to do good? Is this guy going to do bad? Well, this guy sucks. He's never no. He does. He he hits a ceiling five percent of the time. Yeah, not often. But it's not zero. And then you have someone that's, you know, the lock play of the slate. Got to play that guy. It's like, yeah, he'll hit a ceiling 45% of the time. Not 95%. People are acting like it's 95% of the time. When it's really only 45% of the time. And the people that, that, that are acting as if the 5% of the time guy never hits. So he ends up being 1% owned. So it's like, well, look at that arbitrage. He should be owned at 5%, but he's going to be owned at 1%. Balance strategy, I'm just going to play him at 5% and let the field make the mistake. Exploitative strategy, I'm going to play him at 9% because he should be 5 He will be 1%. i am going to exploit, right? And the larger the delta is, the probably the more I would want to. The higher expected value I'd get from exploiting that, that spot. This is game theory. This is this is exactly what game theory is. Will, will the player do well tonight? I have no idea, nor do I care. I have the two. Do I care? In this exact moment, I want my opponent to trade with me, right? I have a two. If, if, if I get my opponent to accept the trade, I win 80% of the time. I want him to trade in this one time. But if I always did that, if I if we were playing the game a million times and I only and I always traded asked to trade on a two, that's not the optimal frequency. The longer and longer I played this game, the more and more I'll lose below expectation. And it by not playing optimally, even if my, my opponent doesn't exploit me. Now, if my opponent exploits me, I start losing even more often. Than, than expectation. Same thing in DFS. On one slate, like the overown guy could still could still get there. Guy's 40% on, but only has a 20% shot at being the optimal lineup. Doesn't mean he can't get he's probably one of the highest guys. 20% may be one of the highest probabilities of being in the optimal lineup. But having less of the guy because he's overowned over the course of a thousand, ten thousand slates. That's 
That's where the profit shows up. That's the, that's the expected value. On that one slate, who cares about that one slate? You're trying to make decisions that you could replicate over and over and over and over again, where you know at the end of the day, at the long run, you're going to have the money in your hand. You don't know what day that's going to be. That's the problem. You just don't know what day that's going to be. Right? So you're playing GPPs every day going, either playing a balanced strategy or exploitative strategy or a mix of both or whatever, and building lineups that have a higher expected value than their probability. Right? And that's what you do. Like, you play 150 NBA slates. You're like, probably, probably win a GPP on one of them. But I don't know which one. Same way of with the cards. I'm going to ask 20% of the time on a five. I'm going to ask 40% of the time on a four. I'm going to ask 60% of the time on a three. I'm going to ask 80% of the time on a two. Am I concerned about this specific one hand, whether or not we, we trade? Right? Well, if I ask this time with a two, I want him to, to accept. If I ask this time with a five, I'm doing it to balance out my range, but I, I really, I'd really rather, rather him not switch. You shouldn't have to care about that. Yeah, sometimes you'll have a five. You'll ask 20% of the time and they'll switch out and you get a three back and lose. But if you're asking at appropriate rates or exploitative rates over the course of the long run, you're going you're gonna to end up with a two and your opponent will over accept, right? You'll ask 80% of the time and they'll accept 90% of the time. But only because I ask 20, only because I ask sometimes with a five. Only because I ask sometimes with a four. And I ask a little bit less with the three. And I always ask with a one, but my opponent will never know when that 100% of the time is because I'm mixing in all the other, a frequency with all the other numbers. In the course of one hand or even 10 hands, hell, even 100 hands. Seeing that, seeing that exploitation, seeing getting the wins above expectation, may not happen. That's that's what variance is, right? But over the course of ten thousand games, a hundred thousand games, a million games, I'm I'm going to win more often than I should versus other people that think in that first level mindset. The third level player is going to win more often than the person that thinks in the second level mindset. So these types of examples, they, they relate absolutely to DFS. How to think about playing DFS. Not who to select on it, who, what NBA player to select, but how to build a lineup. But just the overall kind of brain methodology, rewiring your brain to think in these terms. Think of everything in these terms. What games do you play? What lineups do you play? What contests do you play? What the payout structure is, everything, all probability-based, all based on first level. What do I have? What lineup do I have? What players do I have? What my opponents have, right? The field, the ownership, what my opponents are going to do. And then also understanding that my opponents are going to react to what I'm reacting to them. The third level, oh, I mean, we see that. We say that sometimes in a higher stakes NFL GDPs. Oh, obviously, you know the obvious chalk game. Sometimes in large, in uh, in higher stakes GPPs, goes a little bit under owned. They go, how is that possible? It's the chalkiest game that's that's owned in the large field GPP. 
Yeah. Because these are very observant third level players that are going, yeah, it's uh, this, this game stack is obvious. So I'm going to play something else. I'm going to exploit. I think they're over owned. Right. I go, it's like, oh, this, this stack's going to be over owned. I'm going to play that stack. And then lock hits. And the stack that I played is the most popular stack. Why? Because my opponents have done the same exact thing. They've gone, what is everyone else going to do? Everyone else is going to play that stack. So I'm going to play this one. And when everyone else, everyone else, a lot of large proportion of the field does that, your ability to predict what the field's going to do is off, right? Like, oh, this, this, this stack is over-owned. This stack is under-owned. Yeah, but if everyone can see the same exact information, what ends up happening is this happens, right? Next thing you know, you're playing the under-owned stack and it's the chalk stack. Right? And the and the trucks and the supposedly truck stack is under owned now, right? So that's the third level of thinking. Now with the, the the lower stakes contests, you probably don't have to think at the third level at all because most people are only thinking at the first level, right? You tip you exploit typically by thinking at the level above what most of the, what the, your opponents are. If, if most if most of the field is thinking first level, which is basically just what what lineup do I have? That's it. What's ownership? Like, they don't even consider ownership. All you have to do is think in the second level. And that's ownership. In DFS, that would be ownership. Third level would be how the field reacts to the ownership so the ownership changes because we can see what the ownership is. You don't see that as much in the lower stage stuff because there's so many first-level players. But if you're playing against a field full of a lot of second level players. Now you have to think of like uh, everyone, everyone can see that the top stacks are one, two, and three and the top value plays is two, one, two, and three. So I, I obviously can't just play the, that stack with those players because that's what everyone's going to do. But everyone can see that that's what everyone's going to do. So the four, you know what the fourth level is? Exploiting that, Right. The fourth level would be to play the chalk, knowing that the field is now going to be is going to be exploit, going to be too heavy trying to exploit. And then I and then I end up predicting that the field is going to be under owned on the on the chalk stack. Right. So that would be the fourth level. Let's go over it again. First level. What should I play? What stack should I play? That's it. Oh, high total. I'm playing Kansas City. I'm playing whatever. Second level. Let me take a look at what the ownership is of all these stacks and go, yeah, I think too many people are playing the, I think the Chiefs are over-owned. I'm going to play the Chargers. I think the Chargers are under-owned. So I'm going to play them instead. Third level would be, uh, and that would be the third, uh, that would be the third level. The fourth level would be, I think a lot of the field is going to see that the Chiefs are they're going to see that the Chiefs are projected to be over-owned. The Chargers are going to be projected to be under-owned. And what's going to happen is that the Chargers actually end up being over-owned and the Chiefs end up being under-owned. So I'm going to play the Chiefs because they're going to be under-owned, even though you're looking at ownership projections that say they're going to be the chalk. Because I, I think the field is going to react to the information that we're all looking at. That would be the fourth level. Do you have to worry about all this type of stuff? Not necessarily. I mean, I'm this is the this is the nuts and bolts of how of, 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 of game theory. But this, I mean, this is the type of stuff that is in my course.
the theory of daily fantasy sports, how to think like a professional DFS player. Professional DFS players think in these terms. Some a little bit more than others, right? So this 15-hour audio masterclass, this applies to any sport. Like, like this example that I gave with the cards, this has nothing to do with sports. It has to do with games. How do you play the game better? It's not about, oh, what stats do I have to look at? Oh, I need more stats to look at. Or I need better projections that are slightly, you know, instead of a 0.86R, I need 0.88R. I mean, like, no. Learn how to play the game better. We're playing a game. So I have all these chapters, right? Introduction, game objectives, player selection, expected value, leverage, correlation, construction, risk management, exploit, psychology, bunch of miscellaneous stuff. But if you enjoyed that, this type of example, this, this is game theory. This type of stuff. I explain, I mean, like the first like two or three chapters are all about just the, the, the dynamics of what a game is, the construct of what a game, that's what game objectives are. What is your objective? Is this a sequential game? Is it a non-sequential game? Is it a zero-sum game? What type of game it is? What types of games in the game that we play in DFS? Playing head-to-heads is different than, than large-field GPPs. The objectives will be different, which means the optimal decision-making will be different. There's no one answer. Do you play this guy? Well, I don't know the contest you're in. I don't know the lineup that it's in. I don't, I don't, I don't know your, your, your risk tolerance. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, all that matters. That's part of the game objective. But there are examples like this. I, I go through some like marbles examples and stuff. Not this one exactly, obviously. But I thought Alex pointed this out. He wanted to talk about it on last night's Zoom group coaching call that I do in the Roto-Grinders Discord. If you're a premium member, click on that link in the description. Sign up, be a Roto-Grinders premium member. Get $10 off your first month. And then join the Discord, rotogrinders.com slash Discord. We didn't run anything for NFL. I just, I did that whole explanation. I thought that was worth it more than running NFL. Who knows what the hell's going on with the NFL? I'm going to run, I'm going to run some lineups with some stats. And then later today, the AJ Brown is out. And I mean, look, Kirk Cousins, it's just, just, right. The Swift in, right. We don't even know. Right. So this, this is, this, this is more important. Ah. <sighs> Uh, Jana Lou said, so Nerdy Tanner would take a version of Osmo's optimal lineup percentage, just play him at, no. He would calculate, no, Nerdy Tanner's calculating what the, the optimal lineup percentage is on a lineup level. That's why I said it. it's easier to explain on a player level, but that's not actually what you're doing. You're doing it at a lineup level. Daniel may be better off explaining that on how he does it at a lineup level. So it's not just a matter of exposures of like, well, this guy should be 24% though, so I'm going to play him at 28% though. It's more like this lineup should be played in this contest X percent of the time. So I'm going to play that lineup, type of lineup or the combination of players X percentage of the time. 
Jason Martinez, I should do a video on using the RG optimizer. Yeah, yes, I, I've done, if you've watched this show, Jason, I've done 800 of them. I don't, I mean, all you have to do is, it's on YouTube. All my shows, all these shows are on YouTube. You could start from the very beginning. If you start from the very beginning and watch every show, you'll probably know more about lineup HQ than I do, <laughs> right? Or you'll know at least everything that I know. I've showed everything. Hundreds of times. So my suggestion would be just watch. That's all you have to do. So can you explain something, Greg? Because essentially what you're asking me is like, can you go through something that you've shown on your show at least a hundred times instead of just going to those shows and watching them? So you'd rather just like you're, you're it's an audience of one now. Right, so, so you're lazy, you can't go to the previous videos. So everyone else here that has seen all those videos has to endure me explaining it again to one person. I just want, I just want to, I'm just explaining my perspective. People, people call me rude and an asshole. And from my perspective, you're the rude one. So if you want to figure out how better to use Lineup HQ, there's hundreds of hours of my shows to go through. You're like, oh, I don't want to do that. It's like, so why, why, why should I want to just pause, pause an entire show that hundreds of people are watching? So I can explain one thing to one person that doesn't want to watch the past shows. And Jana Lou says uh, it sounds like a complicated process. I, I'm not, I'm not saying that it isn't a complicated process. I just try to be directionally accurate. Like I said, I don't, I don't, I don't have, I don't have fancy formulas i don't have you know simulations and stuff that does it right i used i use very blunt methods right using stuff like ownership sub ownership product running lineup seeing how often players show up at a certain percentages and go well he's showing up way more that i'm running i'm running optimal lineups and he's showing up a lot more often than what the field seems to be rostering him at Looks like he's going to be under, look, that seems under-owned to me. How under-owned is he? I don't know. I'll take a guess. I'll just take it. I mean, literally, I'm just taking a guess. And after playing for six years, taking guesses, I got pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good at predicting owners, right? But that was, that was my strength with playing poker also. My, my strength was not in being game theory optimal. My, that wasn't my, my, my strength was being able to, to narrow down the hand ranges of my opponents better than anyone else at the table. Where other people could ha- get their hand range within, you know, 12 hands and I could get them within three, right? By studying people's betting patterns. Oh, obviously this is a little bit easier because it's live. Well, a lot, some people have HUD. I mean, online you have heads up displays, but I, I like, I like playing with players for, hours upon hours at a time and profiling them. And based on what hands they turn show up, what positions they're in, I could profile and go, is this player capable of doing X with what well, you know with the certain bets? And I could just start eliminating hands. Going, this can't be that. It can't be, can't be an open-ended straight draw. It can't be this. It can't that can't this can't be a made this this is so unlikely to be a made flush. That I don't have to worry about that. You know, like you just go through all of that. So I'm I was just very good at 
predicting what my opponent's cards are going to be based on their actions. So I took that strength into BFS of I focused heavily on predicting what the field's going to do, which means that my strategy is not balanced. So, which means I don't have a strategy. My strategy is all based on what the field's going to do. So when people ask me, like, before I look and see what the field's going to do, and you ask, well, who do you like today? I don't There's no way for me to answer that question. I like whoever the field doesn't like enough. That's, that's, that's my answer. So until I figure out who, who the field is over-owned on and under-owned on, I have no idea, nor do I care. I don't care about I'm looking at projections. I'm letting I'm letting I'm letting the model project the out the range of outcomes. I'm letting other people put in put in the minutes and the usage and all that type of thing. They know they know the sport better than I am. Then I'm going, it's like, okay, what players are under on and what players are over on? That's who I like. That's who I like. Do you think they're gonna do well? I have no fucking clue if they're gonna do well. I have no idea. I don't even consider it. I don't consider it. I don't even consider. Sure, I would love every day for the players that I roster to do well. Yeah, but it's the same thing when you think like that. It's the same way as thinking, oh my God, I have a five. I hope I'm going to ask 20% of the time and I hope they don't accept this time. Why should you care? As long as you're doing it at the optimal frequency, it shouldn't even matter. Right? You're going to be playing, you're going to play a thousand games. Who cares? You're not even considering what your what what what, what, what it's even going to have the result of this one hand of this game. Same way that I don't consider. Well, oh, you're going to be rostering a, a lot of this guy. I hope he does well. It's like it doesn't matter. Like all I all I care about is whether or not I I predicted field ownership correctly. So once the game's lock, and I go it's like if if I like this guy is going to be thirty percent owned but he should be 45% owned. And I play like 70% of the guy and he comes in at like 56% owned, which is way off from the 30. I, I, I shouldn't have let that much of that guy, right? The guy goes out and puts up 80 fantasy points in NBA. That doesn't change anything, right? That doesn't, I still made a, I still made a poor decision. I still played in minus EV decision based on my, the, the strategy that I played exploitatively doesn't matter what the outcome is as long as i continue and i consistently make plus ev decisions the money will come on that one time i got bail variance bailed me out okay great that one time but if i continue to not predict ownership correctly and end up end up having too much of an over-owned guy too little of an under-owned guy i'm going to be losing money over the long run so my own, my own, the only way that I don't care about the results, I care about, did I, uh, did I make the correct decisions? And my decisions are, are solely based on what the field is going to do. So as long as I correctly predicted, at least within some reasonable degree, like I said, I'm not going to be precise, but I just want to be directionally accurate. And you know, the difference of, oh, this guy's going to be 30% owned, and I think he should be 25% owned instead of 30. So I'm going to play a little less of him. And he ends up he ends up coming in at 28%. Owned. Well, he's still a little bit over owned, right? Like that, that 2% difference, I was directionally accurate. It wasn't precise, 
but I think my directionally accurate is to still be better than the, than the field and most players that play. Now, if the guy that I think should be 30% owned, that, that is, should be 30% owned, that I think is going to be 25% owned, comes in at 50% ownership, then I'm completely off. My lineups are a wreck now. I have an over-owned guy in lineups that shouldn't have that over, have too much ownership in them. Not enough leverage in those lineups. I'm losing money now, regardless of what the results are, right? Very similar in sports betting when it comes to closing line value. You bet on, you bet on a game. If you bet on the, the money line of a game and you bet on the favorite at minus 120, and by and a week, but the week goes by 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 game time, the line closes at minus 200. Yeah, you're sure that one instance, you yeah, you'd love for the, the guy the guy to win, right? And fight or whatever, boxing, whatever that whatever it would be, football game, it doesn't matter. The closing line is the most efficient line. So you're essentially getting a minus 200 bet at minus 110 or minus 120. That closing line value, the delta between the two, is your profit. In that one instance, if the guy loses, it's like, ah, I made a bad bet. No, you made a great bet. If you continue to make bets like that, you will profit. It's inevitable. Over time, the larger the sample size gets, if you can beat the closing line, the more and the, the larger you can beat it by, the more profit you'll make. It's inevitable, right? So what's your goal in sports betting? To beat the closing line. Well, what team should I bet on? I don't care as long as I, as long as I beat the closing line. What does it matter? Right. Do you like the 49ers today? I, I like I like whatever line side of the line has value that will move in my favor. If it doesn't move in my favor, I don't get closing line value and I I lose money to the VIG. The same exact thing in DFS. I think this is well worth it. Much better than running uh, NFL lineups that are going to be useless by tomorrow. Who's coming on and off the COVID list? I don't know. Let's see. What's going on with basketball? We got NBA Grinders Live coming up later today, right? Later today. So tune into that. Hit the hit the notification bell to know when we go live. Uh, then we have crunch time for premium members. We still got a whole bunch of NFL content as usual for week 17. Uh, there won't be uh there won't be an advanced sports analytics show uh today or this week. Uh Stewart and Brandon are are they're dead. I'm just kidding. They're not dead. They're, it's, it's in between the Christmas and New Year's Day. Everyone goes on vacation, their holidays, people spending time with their families. Me, I don't care about my family, so I'm here with you, right? I don't care about my family. I'd rather be up on a Friday morning talking about, talking about solving the six cards game, right, than be with my family on New Year's Eve. But uh, so no, no advanced sports analytics show, but we got a whole bunch of, you know, uh, other NFL content. We got the, you know, the ownership report and stuff tomorrow and everything. Uh, the Blitz show, and then uh, then obviously Sunday morning, we got a bunch of shows in the morning starting at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. Uh, so so always stick around for that. If you got any questions, if you want to talk more about the uh, the, about the six-card game, feel free to come into the Roto-Grinders Discord. Go to the Blenders Game Theory channel. Remember, you got to be a premium member in order to get into that channel. And then uh, our, our next uh, group coaching call is going to be on Saturday uh, January 8th at 3 p.m. 
and you could take you could take part in that. You could sign the little sign up for the little form, and it's like private. It's pri- it's essentially private coaching. Just so happens that a whole bunch of people are there also. So all you have to do is sign. All you have to do is show up. You, there are tons of people that show up that don't want to talk or anything like that, and they're just like, "Oh, I'm just going to show up and listen to you talk to someone else and help them with their problems." That's perfectly fine, also. But it's 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 your time to get. It's if you want if you want that type of that type of one on one attention, that's how you get it. So sign up for Roto Grinders Premium. Go to the Discord, RotoGrinders.com/slash/discord, and hit me up there. And people still talk. Now, it's not just the coaching calls. There's still conversation going on in that channel about game theory, about DFS strategy, not about slate-specific stuff. So I'd love to have you in there. Hit the thumbs-up button on your way out the door, and I will be back uh, next week on Monday with James, right, from Mondays with McCool, and answering your DFS strategy questions, as always, on the DFS pregame show on rotogrinders.com. 